Manifesto Read, Season 2. Hi everyone and welcome to our latest episode of The Manifesto Read. My name is Io. And I'm OJ, your co-host. Yes, we are indeed. And we are back for our second installment of the season. So as you probably are aware, we had intended to do um, a 100 days recording to kind of review the government's policies um, 100 days in, which would have been on the 21st of March. But as you are all definitely well aware, um, the events of COVID-19 have taken precedence. um, And so we have decided to take a different tack um, so we are spending this um, season looking at the government's response to the COVID-19 crisis. Um, we first recorded an episode early on in the week, I believe it was on Wednesday or Tuesday, I think it was, um, on yeah. health, health and social care and the government's response um, to the coronavirus crisis in health and social care. And today we have um, a series of panellists, as you can probably see on our split screen, who are going to be talking us through the, um, the, the impact of the virus on education and the government's approach. Um, some of you doubtless will have kids at home over the next few weeks, which you weren't expecting to be at home. Um, so we're going to hear from our experts um, what they have to say on the matter. And as always, guys, remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Manifesto Read. You can follow us on Instagram at The Manifesto Read, or you can email us at themanifestoread at gmail.com if you have any questions or any feedback. And please do like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you are watching us on the live stream, then I and I both have our phones with us. And so if you contact us via any of those means, we'll be able to answer any questions that you may have for our panelists. And speaking of our panellists, let's move over to them and allow them to reintroduce themselves. You'll be familiar with each of them from the Series 1 recording. And if they're new to you, well, you're going to make friends with them now. So first we have Charlotte Nichols. Hi, I'm Charlotte Nichols. I'm Deputy Head Teacher of a large comprehensive secondary school in Surrey. We've got nearly 2,000 children on roll. Um, I'm also Director of Teacher Training across our uh, partnership of 10 schools which span the county um, and with everything going on with COVID-19 and the school closure I'm currently along with the head and the other deputies managing the um, kind of continued partial opening of the school for key workers students and vulnerable students um, organizing remote learning for those who are not in school um, and kind of working on how we support key workers as much as we can and also teachers as key workers. Brilliant. And then next up in the Going in Africa School, we have Echo Oliver. Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Echo Oliver, communications lead for Rivers Coaching. Um, we are a social enterprise that deals um, well, primarily with education, but to do with um, system restructuring in a social justice lens. Um, at the moment, because of the COVID-19 shutdown of schools, we are looking at how we're supporting schools through the process of opening, supporting the teachers, online learning, supporting parents, and a longer term response um, for those who are most disadvantaged before the, before the COVID-19 outbreak, during it, and the ones who are going to be disadvantaged afterwards. Great, very topical. And then next up, we have Mr. Guy Forbat. So I'm Guy and I'm head of music at William Ellis School, which is an all boys comprehensive in Camden. Uh, I'm also the secondary coordinator for music across the borough with all 70 schools. And I am a governor at Wacker Arts College, which is an alternative provision free school 
for students from 14 to 19. Um, I've been in a little bit. I'm going in over Easter. But at the moment, I'm mainly managing uploading as many resources as is possible to teach music over the internet, which is interesting. Mm. Next up, we have Lotus Bautista. Hi everyone, uh, thanks for the intro, Jay, very nice. Um, I'm the co-founder of Volo and we are a social enterprise that works with universities and organisations to support their career volunteering. Um, interesting time for us at the moment because EdTech is obviously something that's really coming to the fore in this kind of situation and something that universities and institutions across the world are now turning to in the wake of forced distance learning. So. That's something that's really interesting for us. Um, I'm also the um, access coordinator at City Lit, which is an adult education college in London, um, and we support students to go to university. So this is also an interesting time for us in that sense. Um, now that uh, exams are cancelled, in some ways access has a little bit more leverage because we are a 100% coursework SSS um, qualification, at least the way that we do things. Um, I'm also finally a governor for a primary school in Northwest London, so I get to see how COVID-19 is affecting a large spread of the um, education verticals, and it's a very interesting time at the moment. And finally, last but no, by no means least, Ms. Yancey Cooper. Hey, hi all, uh, good to be back. Um, I think last time I was with you, I was working for Teach First as an initial teacher trainer. I have since um, adopted two roles. So I'm a part-time teacher at a large comprehensive in Brent. I teach French Wednesday to Friday. We also have a form group. I've got about six classes. Monday and Tuesday, I work for New Social Enterprise, The Difference. Um, we are a programme of continuing professional development for middle leaders to um, leave their schools and work on the senior leadership team of alternative provisions um, or uh, pupil referral units and the idea is that we increase the quality and capacity of education for those who are most vulnerable. At this time I'm working from home five days a week. I am on rotor so I've been in school last week and the rest of my time is spent putting out flyers online. So great, so we have a wealth of experience, I think, amongst all of the panellists that we have present here. And I think I should also say that I am also a governor of a state uh, Church of England primary school. So I've got some insight that I can bring into it, but obviously we'll defer to our panellists expertise. So as an overview, we thought it would be a good idea just to delve into where we are in terms of UK policy uh, with the government and the suggestion solutions uh, that they have come up with in terms of navigating this unprecedented situation that we find ourselves in with COVID-19. I believe that I can use Yancey to assist with that, of just telling us where we're at at this moment in time. And because things are changing so quickly, I think it's important that we note that we are recording this on the afternoon of the 28th of March, because who knows what may happen Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, next week, with the way that things are, are going. So yes, over to you, Ms. Cooper. Yes, indeed. So um, schools, um, it was announced, I believe, on Wednesday the 18th that school would shut um, their doors after 3 p.m. in the UK um, on that Friday the 20th. So it's been just over a week. Um, they stipulated that it would remain open for uh, vulnerable children and we'll go into exactly kind of the groups that that, that, that involves and the children of key workers who cannot otherwise um, be supervised at home. 
um, they announced in the same briefing that public examinations would be cancelled, so uh, GCSEs, A-levels, um, SATs, and um, therefore, and we've been kind of drip-fed some information since then that um, for GCSEs and A-levels, students would be getting calculated um, grades, and that will be towards the end of July. We have been advised that Ofcall will be giving us more information on exactly what that looks like um, the, the week beginning Monday, 30th. Um, so it's an interesting one in terms of governance because schools have had to take that information, heads of schools have had to take that information and run and interpret it as they will. And I think you'll see via our panelists quite how differently these guidelines have been interpreted. Um, we have been asked to provide work during this period. It became apparent that we would have a role in um, managing uh, children who were entitled to free school meals, um, those who are working kind of with multi-agency workers, and we're talking about mainstream school at the moment and I am speaking from a secondary specialism. Um, in terms of adult education, colleges, professional, guide, uh, professional bodies, um, higher education, there's less obvious guidance, many of them acted to cancel um, exams anyway. I wanted to put caveats on this in that, um, as OJ mentioned, this is live and dynamic. It's unprecedented. And I'm afraid that an old organisation that I used to work with um, went something like, we are building the plane as we're flying it. So I think as we go through the discussion, you might know a few um, concerns, a few frustrations already emerging. But I think it's really important that we're conscious of the fact that we are all figuring this out. The other thing I wanted to mention is this is really essentially a human experience. Um, illness will play a role in what happens to these institutions, bereavement, capacity and all of those things. Um, and also this is a real sector-wide conversation. We don't have early years represented in this group so um, we will discuss the breadth of issues as we see them but just wanted to kind of highlight the limitations that, as I see them. Thank you very much Yancey, that was really thorough. Um, so the first thing to speak about really is just kind of in terms of the overall strategy that the UK government has introduced. Do you guys feel as though the guidance has been correct? Do you think that you have received clear guidance as teachers? Do you think that parents are receiving clear enough guidance themselves and that students are um, having like enough of an understanding of exactly what's happening with them? Charlotte? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that the government, um, if I can jump in here, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Nate, <Nathan>, Charlotte, <laughs> then we'll come so, to you. <laughs> yeah. I think that um, the government is doing what it can to some extent. You know, this is, as we've said, a very um, strange situation to be in uh, and they have to make decisions. And there was a lot of pressure on the government from the schools to close because it wasn't sustainable to keep, the, keep them open. Basically, it wasn't safe either. Um, and therefore, inevitably, it was gonna take a while for the information to come through. Um, that being said, I think that there has been a lack of, or, or a slow trickle of information about how we should be managing this and a lot of expectation on schools to provide a service that they've never provided before um, or, or in a way that they've never provided it before. So, um, you know, for me, it's yes, okay, remote learning, that's a, that's a thing we've got to get used to. Uh, but as technology has been advancing through teaching, I think people have, this is, that's actually less of an adjustment than, for example, managing, providing free school meals to children who are entitled to them uh, when the children can't come to school. Um, you know, the government saying, provide vouchers and we'll reimburse you. 
very much appreciate the sentiment of being re reimbursed. That's not something we're used to, I think, at schools. Um, but actually, how do you do that? And how do you safely get vouchers to the right people that they can actually use? I mean, I work in a, in a school where we have people coming from lots and lots of different areas. Um, and to get to get vouchers that they can use, they need ones for different supermarkets, for example. Um, it's just not very pragmatic. So in that, that, that's just one example of kind of the, the, the detail that you would usually have in a government policy that, that just isn't there at the moment. Lotus, you said you wanted to jump in as well, and then we'll go over to Yancey. Uh, yeah, I think that, as Charlotte said, the, the right sentiment and the right idea is there, and Yancey's already highlighted that we're building the plane as, what, what was the phrase, we're building the plane as we're flying it, and I think that that's really coming through. Um, the thing that I wanted to highlight, though, is that like the NHS, a lot of support for the wider system is falling on education, particularly on schools at primary and secondary. And, you know, a lot has been thought about for the economy, which is completely right. But the practicality of how you give a lot of dependence on the education sector to support the community in this moment, as Charlotte said, it needs to be clarified. But I understand why it's not. It's just something to highlight that there is a lot of pressure falling on schools in particular to help vulnerable groups as well as other groups at a time when they don't really have enough guidance to do so and have never done so previously in such in such a way schools do a lot for the community but in the way that charlotte said is very different so it's something and yancey i think it's it's interesting there are, there are a couple of things that really spring to mind i think the, the, the room for interpretation, as I mentioned before, that has fallen on different head teachers means that some schools are opened and the expectation is that staff come in to work and social isolation just having social distancing, sorry, it's just having fewer kids there. Um, there are schools um, that use rotors. So, for example, um, if I were living with my parents, um, with my grandmother there, that would be an interesting concept to kind of not have two weeks free. So there, there are different interpretations of, of what this should look like for teachers. Um, because it's so because it's so different to other sectors and there's a bit of a different schools are islands and they have different ways of working. I also think in terms of principle and in terms of a real clear articulation of what our purpose is, as Lotus started to say, there's a bit of ambiguity. Are we there to support well-being, um, mental health, to provide um, bereavement services? I think there are certain things that we were struggling with already um, in terms of supporting uh, the most vulnerable, the people with the lowest income, they're all coming to a head here and without the articulation of what you are now as a school, knowing that we cannot be what we've been up to this point, that mismatch or that lack of clarity is meaning that we've got a lot of really interesting, dynamic, different practices emerging. But what could happen in that time is a lot of kind of infection and you know the spreading of the virus and I, I think we'll get onto what that might look like and who's mixing and what social distancing looks like in schools where there just isn't that clarity that that's come with that guidance just quickly before we move on i think there was a really interesting point that you may say and say around um what you guys do as teachers and when you come in when you don't has there been any sort of clarity in terms of guidance that's been given to you as individuals as to what factors in your home situations should dictate whether or not you should be a teacher that goes in or whether you should be a teacher that maybe does the online teaching if that's something your school offers? Uh, guys, what is hand up? And then I'll go over to Charlotte. It's just like a school, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> really? um, I 
think it's different for different schools, um, and this is the whole issue with their schools being islands. So uh, where I've been, um, I think they've been relatively transparent. They, uh, we all filled in a form, and then they put us into one of four categories, which was you live close to school, you're not living with anyone that's at risk, you're not at risk, and you can get to school via cycling, walking, or by car without sharing. And then it went down to, I have to get public transport to get in, but I'm not at risk. And then people that are living at risk or are over 50 and really are at risk or living with people that are at risk. But as I think Yance highlighted, there are some schools that are using it as an excuse to say, well, that's great. Everyone has to come in still, otherwise you don't get paid and you're just going to plan lessons and deliver things as usual during normal school time, which personally I don't think is the best. But that's the issue with not having clear government advice. You can't go to the union um, because there's nothing to actually complain about because it's not clear. That's interesting. So I am going to come to you, Charlotte. Just the comment that you made there, Guy, about some schools saying that if you don't go in, you wouldn't get paid. So does that mean that despite the fact that there is the government grant which has been provided for employees, which you as teachers are, where you should qualify, I would have thought, for schools could qualify for the grants to continue to pay their teachers up to £2,500 a month, are there still schools that are saying, even if you don't come in for reasons pertaining to COVID-19, that you wouldn't get your salary? It's, I mean, basically, it's people going rogue, rather than actually official school policy. But that's the problem. It's where there's the ambiguity. So someone might say, um, and I've heard sort of off the record, lots of different people saying this on Twitter, for example, maybe you live with other people who have previously had some form of respiratory disease, but they aren't technically in the at risk category. And you're just saying, I don't want to come home. I've got eight flatmates that are all working from home. If I come back and they all get it, they know they've got it from me. Uh, I don't want to be that person, for example. Now, that's not fitting very neatly into the I am over 65 risk category. Um, And in that respect, there will be certain unscrupulous uh, establishments that may just say you've got to come in unless you're in this category, this one or this one. Sorry. Interesting. Yeah, I think that um, there's also schools are used to kind of being really strapped for cash. That's been a problem. We talked about it in the last podcast. Um, But also in, in kind of the staff are used to working kind of as much as possible and and leadership teams are are used to having to ask people to work as much as possible and of course there are also some that um, are more unreasonable than others I would say Um, but schools shouldn't have that issue in in terms of the income because obviously it's a the money comes from the government so uh, private schools aside for the state schools for a moment they, they shouldn't be needing to apply for money to pay the salaries because the money is still coming in for all the students even though not all the students are there um so there's no there's no legitimate reason to say you're you know we need you in because we're paying you because that's going to be okay no matter what so it is i think opportunistic if if senior leadership teams are saying everyone needs to come in um i think that in the vast majority of cases there are people are being asked to work on a rotor of some description um and in secondary schools there have been a lot fewer children coming to school than could have been um and in my school we had on the first day we expected 150 students in and we got about 45 and by now we're down to seven or eight that come in changes depending on key worker work working patterns and a couple of students who are, are very vulnerable but i think that there are senior leadership teams who are maybe slightly mis- misinforming people or, or directing people to come in which is unsafe um, but most people, I think, are trying to minimise people coming in. Guy? And uh, just, very quick, just very quickly to add to that, I think some people may may not quite understand yet that 
it doesn't mean that schools are open and children of key workers and vulnerable students should come in. It's saying it's open for them to come in if they wish to. Uh, so again, we've got about seven students only coming in. Uh, but the priority really at this point, from what I understand, is actually social distancing and people not coming into contact with each other. So if you can afford to stay at home because you've got one key worker parent and another parent who's working from home and therefore they can look after you, that's absolutely fine and I think it's probably preferred. Yeah, so guidance that we um, were discussing on the health episode with uh, doctors and those who work in healthcare policy was that really the emphasis at the moment is just on making sure that the disease is as contained as possible. And even if that does mean that certain aspects, such as unfortunately, things like mental health, things like other issues and so on, kind of fall to one side, the priority is just on flattening the curve and making sure that that is pushed forward. So as a barrister, I'm one of the people who's classified as a key worker, but the guidance that we've received is that if it is possible for you to stay at home, that you should do so. And if you can find a way for your child to be looked after at home, even if their school is open and even though technically we can take our children to school as key workers we should make every effort possible to keep them at home rather than taking them in so it seems as though the emphasis on school being physical um, presence at school is very much a last resort if there's no other option rather than encouraging people to continue as normal and um, Yance I think you had your hand up yeah, I just I was just going to say, you know, we've, I think we've given quite a lot of airtime to the kind of few unscrupulous uh, head teachers, etc. I think by and large, um, it's it's the picture is what Guy described, that they're asking teachers kind of what groups they fall into, what risks they're managing, and they are sensitively organising rotors. What we, when what became a kind of out of our hands anyway, when the lockdown came, came happened is that we're not gonna if we're on the road to have two weeks of non-contact um but generally i think there is a sensitivity i think there is great fear among kind of the different leaders in terms of what what this might look like um but i think generally schools are acting ethically and um they're thinking really carefully about the risks to their staff as they were in the week leading up to this announcement and i think the pressure on the government told in terms of them having to collapse classes i know in my school they were sending um staff home all Ready the week preceding if they had vulnerable people at home. What I think is really interesting, and I know that um, I know that one of us is going to start covering um, safeguarding of the staff and children from illness in school um, and how to not spread. I think that's something that might be that there might be kind of bits of great practice with, but it isn't it isn't coming through in terms of clear guidelines, uh, protection, clothing, etc. So we'll go to Guy and then we'll go to Lotus and then we'll move on to the next area of discussion. Yeah, just to quickly um, add on that, I just I think there could be more clarity in terms of what social distancing should be happening in playgrounds, uh, especially in primary schools. I've got members of um, friends who are members of staff at primary schools and you can't socially distance with a vulnerable four year old. They're going to come and hug your leg. Um, so there are staff that I think do still feel like they can unfodder a little bit. Um, and that that's a massive challenge because schools are saying, well, it's our obligation to do that. But many teaching staff are saying, I did not sign up, um, maybe like doctors did with the Hippocratic Oath saying, I'm going to stand, you know, and take the first bullet. I'm, I'm a teacher. Um, and that's just a really hard dynamic for senior leaders to try and balance with in terms of the responsibilities to look after vulnerable children as well. I also just find it as an outsider quite interesting 
because the, a lot of the emphasis that we have, so for example, the safeguarding training that I had to do as a school governor was all about maintaining distance from children and this kind of idea of making sure that you don't have any physical contacts and so on. And then I feel as though quite quite in the reverse, now you guys have become these sort of caregiving um, uh, practitioners in a way where, you know, for some people who I work with, they were discussing how really they're seeing having to take their children to school as daycare rather than as an educational thing and how strange they find it that these teachers are now being given that role for their children at what is a very distressing time for them when all of this all of the years preceding has been all about how teachers need to kind of like stick to this educational role and move away from the sort of caregiving aspect of things um all right so if we go over to lotus <clears throat> and then we'll move over to our deep dives of the different levels of um, education that we have on our notes. Um, it was just, sorry, I think there's also a slight delay on Mike because our connect, my connection is not very good. But um, essentially what I wanted to flag was the whole what Yancey was saying about the sanitation practices and the, again, the kind of lack of guidance. Um, if you are a key worker that is bringing your child to school and it's absolutely necessary, there are no other options. Potentially you are a healthcare worker who is in contact with COVID-19 and very closely in contact with COVID-19. So then that raises an issue of the fact that if you are mixing the children of people who are key workers and doing the right thing that they're sending their kids to school because there's no other option. How, what are you doing then to keep the vulnerable children safe from contraction? Because then you create a cycle of, of contraction, right? Which is the whole point of social distancing. Actually, whilst the, the sentiment is really good to give vulnerable children and the children of key workers a, a safe place to be during the day, that's, what does that safety mean when in schools, you know, they're not loaded with hand sanitizer, there are, there are no gloves, there are no masks to protect those children. How much are you actually protecting them, really, other than giving them a physical building to be when they might go home? And if they are vulnerable, potentially they're being cared for by older relatives, grandparents, aunts, uncles. They've been in contact with a child whose parent is a doctor or nurse that has COVID-19. They're going to bring that home. And then you create a whole cycle of contraction. So that's the kind of thing that I think the sentiment is right, but again, schools need much clearer guidance as to how to do that properly in a socially distant way that does flatten that curve. Because at the moment, that's not particularly clear, I think, and I would love to know what others think. Cool. I mean, um, I've, oh, sorry, yeah, let you go first, Charlotte. Well, no, just that I've, I've obviously been um, kind of one of the leaders doing this, implementing this in a school, and that has been our top priority. Um, and it, you know, it can sound harsh in a way to say, you know, we're prioritising first and foremost protecting the staff because they're older, and we know that this illness is worse for people who are older, um, and and then also from the, the children from each other without creating further social um, kind of segregation because of course the vulnerable children, not always but very often, are already um, ostracised to some extent in their communities in, in within the school community, and if we then say well, you're vulnerable, you need to go in one room and your key worker children need to go in another. We're, we're contributing to a different problem. So it is really difficult, but we have set up um, quite strict practices. We've got rooms that the children sit in. They have a designated desk, a big gap, uh, more than two metres, and then another designated desk. They don't, that, that's the only desk they use. If they enter the area, they have to wash their hands. We do have alcohol gel uh, available. And also our staff are actually... Uh, monitoring from outside the classroom at their own desk and again they have their own desk 
that they don't move from um or they you know they don't switch desks during the course of the day and everything's then disinfected um you know that's the best we can do but we are not professionals in this you know in that field by any means um and we have not received any guidance from anyone about you know proper cleaning practices for example we're using what we feel is common sense but uh we don't know how much how long this stuff lived on things and how whether our cleaning products even are sufficient mm. um i think we're gonna move into the next section i think charlotte and actually charlotte it's probably aimed at you again um but obviously looking at nursery and kind of early education so nursery reception kind of like our youngest our youngest in education um there obviously got a lot of implications that the COVID-19 has on them, um, particularly looking at kind of the workforce in terms of their parents and their carers and kind of the impact of them being out of nursery and reception that has on them. Um, impact obviously on socialising, we've heard Guy kind of quite point out quite clearly that, you know, social distancing being applied to young, young, young toddlers and young, young children is going to be quite difficult. But can you kind of speak to more of the issues that um, are being experienced, particularly in the early education? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm obviously a secondary specialist, but I have a toddler uh, who goes to nursery regularly and it's been very interesting at speaking to them professional to professional as well as just as a parent about how they are managing the situation. And, and you know, the earliest correct curriculum, I think, is brilliant for young people, but it absolutely relies on the professionals delivering the material. And, you know, the nursery that my son goes to, he has... Um, we get the scheme of work, so we get a weekly plan of what's going to happen in the week. I can read that, and as a teacher, I still can't deliver that to him at home. Um, so it is really difficult if they've built an entire scheme of work around a particular book, and there are certain goalposts that they're moving towards, without explaining those in detail to parents. It's very hard for parents to inter interpret it. And of course, whereas you know most of us remember at least something of going to primary school and secondary school, not many of us remember detail about what we learned and why at nursery school um, and also how you get that balance between learning and play because obviously that's that's the that's the skill of being an, an early years provider and i think that um it maybe shows us something about how we have not necessarily uh valued early years provision in the same way and Absolutely. as soon as you as a parent get your child at home and go oh my goodness i don't know what i'm doing um it, it does really show you something and i you know, and certainly for me, it's really thrown into relief as a teacher myself, still not being able to understand how to deliver the curriculum. Um, I, I really feel for parents who have no experience of teaching because it is a really difficult thing to manage, I think. Yeah, the number of um, the number of parents, young parents, parents of young children I've seen on social media posts that to every carer out there for young children or teacher young children, who's done this for year in, year out, they deserve to be paid, like, they deserve to be paid the amount CEOs are paid because it literally yeah. is such a skill because they've literally put day five of home learning, I want to die, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so, I, yeah. And Guy, and guy actually, um, you know, I want you to kind of speak more to this, to this notion of kind of social distancing not being possible. Um, and kind of speaking about the, some of your colleagues' experiences on this. Yeah, so I was uh, I had a brief phone call with a friend who works at um, a couple of primary schools in a music capacity uh, just a couple of days ago. And uh, first of all, you actually, as well as the social distancing, you've got the problem that you've got different staff in every day. So you might have the same four kids, um, but they will come into contact with 
20 different members of staff coming in on the rotor and it is you know it is physically impossible the, the concept of social distancing for some kids is they're just not going to get it um but if they're used to learned behaviors are running around again especially if you've got vulnerable kids or to be fair any kid just going to get excited and and play when they're with other children so it is impossible to um establish that I, from what I understand in primaries, although there might be primary schools that are effectively doing that in some way, um, which means that staff are really at risk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think we're going to move over to the, the next deep dive. OJ, over to you. Yeah, so if we now move into the secondary education, which I think is the area that most of you are um, most comfortable working in. And um, one of the big areas of policy that has come out or big decisions that have come out is obviously the movement to not have exams. There's no, as I understand it, no GCSEs, no AS, no A2 levels um, being um, held. And I assume the same for IB as well. So just on a very basic level for those of us who've not been to secondary school for about 14 years, what does that actually You're mean? You're old. old. I know I'm old, I'm old. <laughs> but look at my skin. I'm so young. Um, but no, but generally, if you, if you are a student who was about to take these exams, um, what will your grades now be based on? And I'll ask that question to Yancey. I think two things um, come up here. One is what's actually going on. So the calculated grade is going to look exactly the same as the GCSE, A-level kind of grades that, um, that they'll receive in exactly the same format. What it is, is the teacher puts forward uh, the grade and it, it will probably be something like the prediction. And um, it will be then, I guess, moderated with prior attainment, how the rest of the country's doing to make sure that there's the kind of the bell curve, et cetera, et cetera. So that, they, you know, it's as close to what the reality should be. And they, and they keep talking about, you know, this, this cohort not being disadvantaged, but as we're really pressing the matter, on the um, already disadvantaged kids in this cohort being further disadvantaged. Now, the flip side of that is the messaging. Now, depending on how your year 11s, in my case, turned up on the day after that announcement, you needed to message that in a particular way. Ours came in rumbunctious, kind of uh, overexcited, a little liable to trashing a few bits and bobs around the building and had to be told, hold on you need to engage with us this isn't about you this is a national kind of uh, this is a global pandemic and you, for me in the back of my mind i'm thinking you know if they go off and they don't engage with learning for six months what happens to the next level so they had to the message that they needed to hear was you will get your mock grades unless you keep engaging with us and it's a, and it's a really like this is why i keep bringing back the human element of this thing we're managing and we're getting through pet education uh, information and i'm still engaging with my year 11s and some of them are saying okay um if, if, if I then, with that message, if I then work really hard from home, can you predict me? Da, 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 da. If I all of a sudden improve remotely to some different, like, you know, for French, all of a sudden everybody is fluent in Google Translate. Not everybody, but the ones that, the ones that really, if I improve this amount, can you do X, Y, and Z to my prediction? And so there is something about messaging that we're having to do, something, you know, something kind of political in there that we need to keep engaging with. I think the key thing that I came up with last time, and that's, I'm going to bang on about it, is what the effect that teacher assessment has on um, disadvantaged uh, children and BAME children. And I think we understand that when we look 
at disadvantage in general, I'm talking about low income, um, the fact that teacher assessments that they tend to do better in um, anonymized kind of state assessments than they do with teacher assessment because we bring our biases in there. We're starting to talk about that. We are not talking about the fact that that will intersect with if you are a BAME child, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the fact that we're not talking about that on a school level, that head teachers are not naming that and saying, therefore, I'm going to hold heads of departments uh, accountable to making sure that this doesn't happen. Therefore, we're going to upskill and take this time to upskill on these biases. That's a bit of a, again, that, that's, that's a flabby area that some schools will think about and some schools won't. And I think the majority of schools won't because this isn't, this isn't a dialogue that we're having necessarily nationally. So I'm seeing it as a think piece in the garden where you'd expect it to be, but not a national conversation. So when I'm thinking about these transitions, these SATs, these GCSEs, these A-levels, A, there's a fear of them having enough knowledge to access the next step, but then being kind of disadvantaged twice, three times by whatever their structures at home have or haven't been able to provide them. And the fact that the teacher's got that kind of, that is, is bringing their biases to it. And I'm talking about good, fantastic, fair teachers all being susceptible to this. Has there been talk or um, discussions for moderation of these assessments? Has that been something that's been, consid been considered? So the moderation will be, okay, is this, could, could, could this, could this, is this grade plausible based on their prior achievement? Um, but is that enough? Is that yeah. enough? Is, is, is moderation, have you engaged with this bias? Uh, is moderation, you know, what have they learned? What, what have their structures been at? You know, like what have they overcome or those types of things. Um, and I think these are the questions because, because they're not asked that really don't serve um, our, our disadvantaged students. All right, we'll go to Lotus and then to Charlotte. Um, I think also from what I, I was a secondary English teacher and I still tutor because I want to maintain my teaching practice. But what I think is really interesting on basing things on mocks and things like that is that sometimes students engage because they think I've got so long. Time when you're 16 doesn't feel the same as when you're 30. You think there's an exam in six months and you think, God, that's ages away. So maybe you start to engage in April. And it's still March right now and you're thinking, oh, it's fine. But then in April, you get this big boost. It was known in my school as the fear. You get the fear and your, your working productivity goes up exponentially. So maybe in your mocks, you were sitting at a D and your parents were, you know, not particularly happy with you. A four. But you a get to four. April and you think, oh, or a four. Yeah, sorry, a four now in the, new, in the new grading system. You get a four, maybe even less. You get a three or a two, depending how much you didn't want to revise. And then you get to April and your parents are like, you've got a two in your mocks. You need to get at least a six or seven or eight or nine, depending on, on your background or, or just your personal expectation. And you boost yourself in that last moment. So I think, you know, teacher assessment is really good. But sometimes also as teachers, as Yancey said, we have biases. And sometimes the kids, they don't want to engage until a certain point because it just seems so far away. So what do you do about in that scenario? You know, and, you know, the, for my students, the announcement that exams weren't happening was actually a real kick in the teeth because they were the students who really, they didn't, they weren't, were not happy with having to, they just, they weren't vibing with the system, let's say. But then they thought, you know what, I really want to do well for myself. And they had been working incredibly hard from September to this point thinking, oh, it's nearly in sight. I can nearly touch that exam. To then be told after six, seven, eight months of working incredibly hard, there was really no point of that. That's, that's yeah, a hard I mean, pill to swallow. Even as somebody who went to, uh, you know, I went to quite a decent, academically um, strong private school. And even then the trend was always 
that the students, whatever grades you got in your mock exams, the teachers would accept that you'd get at least half a grade higher in your actual and your final exams. And so there were a couple of situations. I remember there were a couple of students in my year who, for various reasons, were unable to take certain exams and the approach that the teachers at my school took was that they would look at what you had done in your mocks and then as long as you'd done one or two essays assessments whatever since then which had received a higher grade they would lean your predicted grade or your, which would become your actual grade as the higher version of that but that took a, a sort of in-depth knowledge of that 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 teacher had of that student. It took the fact that, you know, private schools are very invested in making sure that their students receive A's and A stars. Market. So they yeah. yeah, exactly. Because yeah. that's that's you know how they justify the amount of money that they demand from parents each year and so on. Um, and I think it's very interesting to I remember this this book that I always go on about, I just grabbed it from my bookshelf called Slay in Your Lane, um, which talks about education. And it talks about the perception of uh, black females and um, male students and how they are very often um, undergraded by their teachers, how they had to introduce in various countries, the UK included, anonymised testing to ensure that those students were not um, underpredicted in terms of their grades. And then after that, after the anonymization, their grades would shoot up. So it was nothing to do with their performance. It was to do with that sort of perception. Um, and yeah, so bringing in that human element, that subjective element increases the opportunity for prejudice to enter into the grades. And I know that's something that Echo, that you work with quite a lot um, through Rivers Coaching. Is that something that you guys, you've mentioned that your company is trying to help schools with practical tips as to how to navigate this type of situation is this an area that you guys have been consulted about with any of the schools that you work with don't forget you're on mute by the way <laughs> of course i was going to talk in, in, in silence for a while um so we haven't even gotten onto the the testing part because at the moment we're just still looking at the um support of students in terms of the distance learning but um i think it's more to yancy's point um that she'd made, that, and I was going to say a lot of the things that came out in our previous episode are really like, I, I think, coming to the fore now um, because of this crisis, all of the um, lack of provision for the most vulnerable students, especially, and, and in particular, being students, a lot of the under training of staff in terms of, yeah, dealing with, um, I hate, I hate the unconscious bias thing because I think it's, people want to say it's unconscious, I think it's conscious most of the time, but we just don't see a problem with it um, because we're just accustomed to, well, this is this is how life is, this is what this is um, the way that we, we normally do things. Um, and we've, we've all got them. Um, but then, so then when we're coming then into the testing element, as in like, we're just seeing an exasperation of an already existing issue. Um, the, the way we test an exam kid uh, or young people isn't, doesn't accommodate for those people who don't well for the people who don't test well the people who do you know wait till later in the year to kick into gear the people who come from back there's some people who um come from backgrounds where it's essential that all of your grades you know even at the mock at, at mock are you know all the way up there and if not then that's a problem at home um so is it fair for it to be based on teacher assessment probably not actually um, but then that requires then some training of teachers. But at the moment, the position we're in is because we are dealing with a crisis, teacher training in order to deal with this, with, with um, 
with biases and so on and so forth is like everything else going to take a back seat to just making sure that we can uh, that the kids can come in and that they can learn and all the rest of it so yeah so she put to charlotte charlotte had oh. had anna previously yeah so okay. we'll go to charlotte then we'll go to yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I completely agree with what's been said and that we're, the timing is also bad. And I mean, it is a definitely an opportunity for training of staff um, with the massive caveat that we've got a whole load of staff who are off. We've got staff. I mean, that in itself is an issue, right? If we're going to be asked in the next three, four weeks to provide grades, some of our staff are not going to be able to access the, the bank of evidence that they would have been using from school that is located in school because they are uh, shielding so they're not coming out it's not just a seven or a 14 day thing for them they are stuck inside until you know something changes mm. so there is a lot there's a lot here I'm really scared of the you know click down the list here's a list of grades good luck off you go um, and the, and you know so, so training would be great but the practicality that is difficult um, and the other thing which I think we did touch upon is is the relationship between student and teacher not just in terms of teacher bias which i completely agree with but also you know that that the the least uh disadvantaged students or the most advantaged students are going to be the ones who are most likely to try now to use their relationship with their teacher use the fact that they are seen as great students um to to you know to try and get something i myself bumped into a student the other day who said to me you can predict me a seven can't you and i said well hang on a second you're not you're on the foundation tier the maximum grade you can get is a five and he said change my tier so um it's just a case of you know looking at that that doubling up of things that if we're already saying disadvantaged and more disadvantaged advantaged are going to become more advantaged too if we're not careful yeah I think it's really important to talk really seriously about the, the concrete ways in which um, advantage and disadvantage plays out. So it's not just the money, the money in your bank account or the food on your table. They, they, there is the option, I'm sorry, which I didn't mention earlier, where if you disagree with the grade that you've been predicted, um, sorry, that has been calculated on your behalf, then you can uh, sit the exam in early on the beginning of the next academic year and they've left that ambiguous for obvious reasons or next summer um, and my sense is i'm sure there'll be very different interaction with that opportunity depending on advantage level they're the people that can advocate for themselves the people that feel confident after six months of no in-person learning to go and take that exam that they were calculated a lower grade you know those types of things are going to play out as well whereas in my head i'm kind of thinking oh should i guide certain students to actually go ahead and prepare now as if they're taking it in september and i've been i've been told no we're not we're not we're not going to recommend that to a student it's up to them to decide well then what social contracts are going to come into play in that decision is it a free decision yeah. lotus um, yeah, I think also just in terms of raising the point of advantage and disadvantage and what both Charlotte and Yatso have said about this not just being about money, um, also about access, but access is a really important thing as well if you are expecting children to learn at home, you are making a huge load of middle class assumptions that they have access to a computer or some kind of technology where they can see what's online, <coughs> that they have access to a space that is quiet and available for them to sit and do that work, and that they have a supportive environment where they can 
they can just sit for a few hours and do their work. You know, lots of families will be living in very small accommodation where that's just not possible. It might be that you have multiple siblings and all of you are trying to learn at the same time, but you have one laptop in the house that your parents need to use. Maybe you, you all, you, you have no quiet space. You can't go outside. There's not really anywhere inside. We're making, we're making a whole load of assumptions about how children can learn at home. Mm -hmm that actually the majority of children that live in this country don't live in those environments. Yeah. So, which is really, you know, which is really, sorry to cut across. It's really interesting, right, I was just no going to say. Do you remember when we were speaking in series one, all of these points, so first of all, that we noticed the Conservative manifesto was completely silent on the fame uh, teacher training, disadvantaged teacher training and so on, and, and dealing with those aspects. Um, and that also, that we had found it very interesting how much emphasis there was in the Labour and Lib Dem manifestos on rolling out broadband to make sure that there was accessibility for people from a wide range of backgrounds to very good quality internet. And I just find it very interesting, and this came up in the health episode, and I, I think it's going to come up in all of these episodes, where a lot of these factors that we have identified as meaning that these rollouts are quite difficult, the mid, this middle class bias that we're talking about, were factors that were highlighted in the Lib Dem and Labour manifestos that the Conservative manifesto um, did not turn its mind to. And as we were going to discuss in our 100 day episodes, were aspects that had not been introduced by this government so far. Um, it makes you wonder how things may have been had the election <laughs> gone differently um although you know who, who's to say who's to say what would have already been implemented by now um as it came along so quickly echo you've had your hand up for a while let me let yeah, you like, speak like a good student <laughs> um yeah so essentially it was what lotus was saying it was like one of the first conversations um we had as a team was oh yeah all that stuff that labor and lived Dem for proposing sounds real good now doesn't it but, and but then and going back to the beginning of um you know the episode and talking about well about the government's response um it's not just to do about well when schools would close and um how we were going to assess kids but that whole thing of like well okay if we expect most people to stay home um, and most teachers stay home and to do social distancing and we're going to protect the most vulnerable, protecting the most vulnerable kids is also to do with the provision for them outside of the school environment, right? And so it is like, yeah, internet access, computer access, if you are going to be distance learning, access to resources. I know the private sector seems to have stepped up quite um or I should say more readily than the government's been able to in saying like somewhere like Audible where they've said, okay, we're going to give all um, access to, uh, I think um, young people's literature is going to be free. So you're not going to have to pay for that. Um, and like that whole complete la lack of consideration of saying that, okay, if we are going to tell people to do this, what, what do they need? And so at the moment, the government has sort of this um, ability to almost like write a blank check for a lot of resources. Um, they can still, that they can claim back later, whether it's from in how it is that they budget for schools later on and so on and so forth. But if it, this is about providing the best they can, and, and when we're talking about that, um, the educational, uh, the disadvantage gap or the advantage gap and how that expands, like every time stuff happens that's sort of closing it. So we have anonymized testing and then suddenly you have a closing of the gap almost immediately after you start seeing the widening again because of something else. And so this is one of those periods where 
maybe we didn't see it coming necessarily, but over the, I'm, I'm pretty sure over the course of the summer, you are going to see a widening of that gap again, again, because of things um, like access to online resources. Um, I'm very, I'm, I'm, in awe of the child who goes, well, change my, um, <laughs> change my tearing to you, child. Because I'm like, I, if you don't have the confidence to do that, you don't come from a background where that's necessarily um, how you feel about things, there are going to be students who aren't going to take this opportunity to do all the learning they can. There are students who can't take the opportunity to do all the learning they can to be prepared for September. And then that pushes them back. And so as as was my um, sort of like demeanor in it, um, last season is in like, it is really frustrating to see how all of this seems like it's gonna play out and the people who always seem to lose are gonna keep losing. Um, but because we're talking about, well, because we're social distancing, because you know, it's um, a pandemic and we're just trying to protect people, it's gonna be okay for them to lose. So Guy, we'll, cut, we'll take Guy's point um, and then we'll move to the next topic. So Guy, your point to kind of round yeah, this just, up. Yeah, just really quickly as a sort of a case study how we're dealing with distance learning. Um, we had a conversation on Friday with all the heads of subject about having to create completely non-digital packs for certain numbers of uh, disadvantaged students because they just don't have access to the internet. And then this is an issue with teacher workload because we're saying, well, actually the online stuff that we've created is separate and we can't really do non-online versions so we're going to have to create two separate parallel schemes of work and then are we printing a hundred copies of this or are we going to post it to parents um, and then yeah there are people that have the internet but they only have it for like two hours a day and I think lots of schools are just carrying on like normal and and I admit yes we're building the plane that we're flying so I understand we're all trying our best but it's a massive challenge um, for teachers to try and give the equivalent number of hours that they would normally teach and there are some schools that have got kids online for five to six hours a day actually doing live lessons when they would normally be doing the lessons and the teachers having to deliver it i've even heard a story of a teacher being observed or teaching an online <laughs> lesson by another online teacher <laughs> Um, and, and then giving them feedback on their online lesson and everyone's getting to the end of the week and everyone is shattered you know it's just completely yeah. not sustainable um in our school we've looked at just saying let's do a, a half-term project for the kid we upload all the resources and we signpost um because with the calls to parents that we've done and i know we're going to chat about this in a, in a moment um in terms of uh helping the students we've, we've got 10 students that we need to call every single week to check in with them as staff just to see from a well-being point of view and basically all the parents are just like leave us alone um okay they're not saying leave us alone but they're like just give us a week just to get our head around adjust like, yeah yeah fine <laughs> art you know like art homework is important but so is like eating and making food with and, and and siblings communicating and getting to know each other so it's it's one big massive in like really big challenge so because we've been talking about vulnerable children, we actually had two questions that came in from listeners. Um, so a question from Mo and a question from Shay. And they've, they've asked along the same lines, I'll roll them into one, which is basically um, what is happening for, to proactively assist vulnerable children for whom school would normally have been a haven. So for example, uh, maybe you have issues around domestic abuse at home, um, maybe you are vulnerable in any other way and a question that i had as well was what are the practical things that are happening if you have a parent 
who is a vulnerable person or a parent who doesn't speak English as a, as a first language and so on, so can't navigate those teaching uh, materials. What are the practical steps that are being put in place for people in those situations? Yancey? I think it's really important to add some doom and gloom. Children will become more vulnerable because of this. They will yeah. be bereaved um, with this kind of confinement. Domestic violence will happen differently and newly in different areas. There is more vulnerability at play here. So just, yeah, just thought I'd say that. What is in place is, uh, please come into school. I'm going to identify you and bring you to school. So that's a, that's an option. The other thing that lots of schools are doing is um, kind of what Guy mentioned. So uh, identifying, I know that um, our pastoral team have been working tirelessly to identify the 60, 80, 100 kids and assign them to different senior leadership staff for weekly phone calls. Um, they have told us that safeguarding continues. So we've got um, specific ways to safeguard online, to escalate problems using the same escalate concerns using the same system i'm interested i i wonder if charlotte would have um more insight in terms of how multi-agency work is going to keep continuing us all being key workers we're all at work but um we are definitely we're certainly building that that plane while we're flying it these are the options but i think we are going to have to be incredibly creative as more vulnerability um starts to become apparent yeah charlotte uh, yeah my understanding is that well, schools, a lot of the time schools are leading this again. So um, all the things Yante said, I'm not going to repeat them, but uh, I think that's fairly common practice that we are uh, making up a system to try and manage that. I know that in my own school, the safeguarding lead wrote to the local authority to say, by the way, this is what we're doing. Are you doing anything? Um, the, the One of the big things in terms of multi-agency is the kind of almost shutting down of social services, uh, which you know we know already because of, cuts um austerity they've they've it's been very difficult to get social services support for children anyway at the moment um spoken to a few friends who are social um who work social services who are saying things like uh we're being asked to go to uh the houses of people who are sick um but we can't do that uh, other ones being told you can't go anywhere don't do any home visits um just make a phone call and, ho and hope for the best and we know that that doesn't work so i think that um the you know as we go forward hopefully there'll be more multi-agency crossover and work uh than there has been at the moment but um i am seriously concerned about the well-being and safety of our most vulnerable young people and that isn't just you know the, the, the obvious things that come to mind in terms of abuse that we've talked about but um families where there isn't enough money to eat uh families where the parents already were working long hours um families where delivery drivers are the parents for example they're going to be under a huge amount of pressure now to work longer shifts um, yeah. and that is going to put young people at risk because they're going to be at home on their own for a really long period of time and nobody can check in on them because of social distancing cool so moving on to our last our last one second, one second. One I was just going over to echo all right. And then we'll go over to the next topic. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Don't talk over me. No. Um, <laughs> no, I did have. Um, so mine was actually more of a question for um, the people who are teaching because, um, with regards to the kids who were identified as vulnerable, I know some of um, 
them also have a certain level of anonymity normally in school in terms of um, those vulnerability. And now where you, you've highlighted that actually, so school is now open to the most vulnerable kids and the kids of key workers, but the ones who are most vulnerable are definitely going to be um, part of the cohort. Like what happens to that sense of anonymity and the protection that they have from that? How's that being dealt with? And then also, yeah, um, but then we've also got this issue of like for the key workers who work in like really essential services where they are going to have to be working longer hours where they are. Um, I know I was hearing talk of like NHS workers who essentially weren't going to be able to go home for like two weeks or something like that because they had to stay in school, um, stay in school, stay um, at the hospital and isolate from their families until um, they're like, what happens to all these kids? Because now we've got now, now we're going to have people who weren't vulnerable now becoming vulnerable um, as well. So what happens to them? Or is that a discussion that you guys have had in your schools? We've definitely, um, the, the first thing about uh, vulnerable students and their identity uh, definitely was a big concern for us. We contacted all of the vulnerable students privately through their uh, parents or carers um, and then have brought everyone in on the basis that everyone there is key workers. So um, we've sort of we've given them they can obviously self-identify if they want to. But uh, we've we've kind of gone with the public expression that we're looking after key workers. And that's been our way of approaching it to try to allow them to continue the anonymity if they want to. Because also, um, although there's been some guidance from the government about what vulnerable means, they've also allowed schools to extend that definition um, to, to students who might not fit directly within those categories. But we know that are not safe. Uh, to have to spend all day on their own um, and sometimes those vulnerabilities in particular are very private so um, LGBT students for example whose parents are not accepting of them um, is an important one for them to have a safe haven uh, also students whose siblings have severe learning learning disabilities and they are uh, violent for example again that can be a very private thing that people don't want to share so we've we've gone on the basis of everyone's a key worker child publicly Cool. Um, so we're going to move into further education. And I notice you're going to cover this. If you want to roll your point previously, it's going to be roll into that. But yeah, so um, further education, we're looking um, specifically at here. So university, higher education, and also something that um, we realize is also part of education beyond further education. So professional qualifications. So people studying um, for legal qualifications, accounting qualifications, financial qualifications. Um, accountancy qualifications um, and we want to kind of discuss and delve into some of the impacts um, that the COVID-19 disease is going to have on these and so handing over to Lotus to talk us through. Yeah sure. Um, so obviously I'm going to talk from the experience of my particular college. I know that lots of colleges are trying to have a kind of unified approach to this. One thing is that whilst the government guidance gave a lot of support for um, primary, secondary, and to some and to some extent, early years. Actually, the guide for higher education and colleges is not particularly clear or professional bodies. Um, so I think that that's one thing to highlight that the conversation about what these organisations are going to do, which is going to be led by QAA, um, the Quality Assurance Association, who kind of oversees all of the higher education qualifications, they're going to discuss it in April. And that discussion is going to happen on the 2nd of April. So what I think that that really highlights is that higher education, tertiary education, adult education, further education, as has been with funding, is always kind of an afterthought. 
So they're kind where where their our institution in particular is trying its best basically to work with whatever guidance has been given and apply it across the board to our qualifications or our study. Now with our college in particular, um, lots of our courses are they're not accredited, so there's no exam attached to them. But there are financial implications for the college if we cannot run these courses online, which is really really possible because a lot of our tutors are not trained in how to deliver online training even my tutors we run an access course and i basically had to i had to force my tutors to teach the course online not that they were resistant to it but it's a whole new learning curve right and we have to do that we do have an accreditation at the end of our course and if we don't finish the course our, our students won't be able to go to university so there is a lot riding on us on me forcing the tutors to teach online but then for those that are not accredited, if we don't teach those courses online and our students don't want to join those online courses, the college is going to lose a whole load of money, which has long term implications for our future as an institution. This is an institution that has been in, in London for over 100 years and supported people through two wars, but potentially we're now facing a pandemic that we're not sure how to manage. So um, I think the kind of summary really for us is that professional education, adult education, has been kind of left to try and do things, trying their absolute hardest to continue, but with very, very, even less guidance than other parts of education have been given, I would say. Something that I have found really interesting about this and, and sort of just kind of thinking as, as the conversations developed is that from employers' perspectives, I think this is going to be very, um, they're going to really need to turn their minds to this, aren't they? Because in years to come, when these students have these grades on their CVs, employers are going to have to be hyper aware of the fact that this was during the COVID-19 pandemic and recognise that the GCSE grades, the IB grades, A-level grades, even university grades and so on, may not have been examined in the same condition as other candidates who have received grades you know using traditional methods and I wonder it's not really a question I guess it's just me kind of thinking I wonder how that's going to be navigated in future um, when people are recruiting and when they're weighing up the emphasis that they, they place on the context of those grades having been achieved in that sort of way and um, Lotus I think you had a response actually and Charlotte as well yeah I think you raise a really interesting point about the purpose of exams in general because our course is not an exam based course because it's aimed at adults who have been out of traditional education for a very very long time it's a hundred percent coursework assessed but it is as intense as difficult as frustrating as an exam based course which you know from the it's obviously from the feedback we've had from both the students and the institutions that we send them to and they go to russell group universities and non-russell group universities is that they are far better prepared to go to university through this method of of, of assessment traditional you know you it, it's all or nothing to our exam and if you don't do well well sorry you know that that method of teaching potentially that's also something that we need to raise one thing i didn't touch on again because of time um, university offers have now been paused for two weeks because the essentially as I said really enough guidance as to how universities deal with this change in qualification so they've paused giving out their offers for two weeks and the, the deadlines have been extended but how they're going to decide whether or not a student has a place hasn't got a place when we have issues of the biases behind future assessment 
there's a lot that is still at play that we're not entirely sure about. Now, for courses like mine, we're okay because we can still give that accurate teacher assessment based on work to come through over the course of this whole year. So potentially, should we ever situate again, actually, we're fine other than the online delivery. Whereas if, you know, all those issue, other issues to the A-level, you've got a student that's not engaging, maybe they don't do well in exam exam situation or they do, do do well after the fear. Yeah, that's something that's still very much up in the air for all qualifications in the adult learning and tertiary space. Great. So just conscious of time, what I propose that we do um, is we move on now to sort of the long term consequences that you guys think that we'll have. And let's try and emphasise the positive as well as the negative. And then I am going to quite cheesily ask each of you uh, what you have been doing with, although I don't think any of you have had any extra free time, but what have you guys been doing during your isolation at the very least? Because I think even if you haven't had much free time, you've certainly not seen as many people as you may have wanted to and what I'll actually ask you guys to do and I'm putting you on the spot here but I'm aware there are people who are listening live um, and will be listening later hopefully is maybe what we can do is in terms of things like practical tips for parents who are homeschooling for the first time and so on we'll share those through some mini videos on our Instagram profile um, so if everyone if you I'll, I'll use it as an opportunity to plug our Instagram which is at Manifesto Read, and have a look on there for some exclusive content from the education panelists. Um, but yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so guys, if we just uh, quickly go around and talk about some of the positive and negative long-term consequences that you, that you think. I think we've actually highlighted the negative quite a lot, so maybe if we try and emphasise some of the positive, if we can find some. So we'll do Charlotte, Guy, Yancey, Lotus, Echo, because you all seem to have something to say, which is great. Charlotte? Um, I think for me, it's been the opportunity for like the bond between students and, and teachers to improve through that really personal one-to-one -one connection. And in particular, those students who are quieter, um, sometimes not seen or heard or can, you know, fly under the radar a bit, that they are getting the opportunity to have a voice, um, often by email, but still, and actually build up that relationship with their, their teachers and take responsibility for their own learning. And I, for me, seeing that develop, um, in students who probably wouldn't have done because the system fails them, I think is really great. Guy? You need to unmute your mic. The irony is that Guy is the person who has the most experience with sound recording. <laughs> um, so I'm going um, to echo the point in terms of the relationships with students. I've had um, 10 to 15 minute conversations with many students this week because I'm responsible for calling them and I don't think I've ever had that in school because when you're doing it a kid runs into the classroom and something happens and you just in the hustle and bustle of school you don't get 10 minutes quiet phone calls, um, very often at all um, and the other positive thing is this is probably one of the best BPD that just will get in their entire career um, yes I admit you know uh, it's it, there are some negative reasons because of that but uh, I've got staff that have been grappling for the last two years in setting online homework using our personal platform um, because they've managed to slip through the through the net and now they have to and everyone has to understand how to use it so even for me uploading online resources having smart resources that potentially I will be able to use for the whole of the rest of my teaching career. I'm actually taking this opportunity to do things I've never had the brain space um, and the time to do. Yeah, I would 
add two things. One, again, boring relationships. When I went in, there was there were four children between key workers and vulnerable, and boy, we had a time. So they had about three hours of kind of time on, on their computers to do their sessions. And then it was creative time. So played football, I've been nutmegged untold amount of time, played badminton, we did karaoke. I mean, honestly, I I was buzzing by the end of that the other thing is it's just a great opportunity again that 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 guy was mentioning things really shouldn't return to the way they were again I think we've completely busted over the limitations of the system I think in the scary thing in that year sixes have had a term and a half of year six and are starting secondary school now will there be secondary schools who extend a primary model for another term and a half um will there what will the response be and because I guess we have this really devolved um governance of 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 education there should be pockets of some really interesting, innovative, um, ethical ways of approaching this, um, and that that I'm really excited to be a part of. Um, yeah, for me, I think Yancey's kind of touched on it, but I think one of the positives is that basically school and education can never be the same after this. But more so from the kind of teacher workload perspective, um, we've I, I know that. In the institutions I've worked in, and even in the school where I'm a governor, there's a lot of resistance to the use of this method, for example, or this method of teaching. But by allowing people to meet in this way and to discuss in this way, you give them a lot of free time that really is the most valuable currency in, in a teacher's life. So, you know, I've been advocating for online meetings, for example, at the school I'm a governor at, because it takes me 45 minutes to get there and 45 minutes to get back. And I've been told, absolutely not, not possible. And now we have to do it. And I'm like, you can never tell me again that we cannot do an online meeting because you have to do it. And this is going to save me an hour and a half of my day. I can still I can still be part of the school community. And I'm so excited to do that. And I think if we start thinking, as Yancey said, in these much more innovative ways to harness technology, because after this, hopefully all our Internet speeds will be exceptional as well. Um, you know, there's so much possibility out there about how, who can te teach our kids? Do we even need a building anymore? Yes, we do. But potentially, you know, you could have teachers from other countries teaching your children or for specialists from other places, really your children. There are so many opportunities that this opens up for our system that if we really take advantage of it, I think it would be absolutely amazing. And the six month gap experiencing, we can make up for it, hopefully. Echo? Okay, sorry, I thought I was going last. So um, I think I'm trying to be positive about all of this is that I think much to what everyone said is in like those connections that teachers are able to make with their students now, um, the advantages of being able to all those things that weren't possible before that everyone wasn't willing to consider um, that would have helped disadvantaged students that would have helped um, people with you know where home wasn't necessarily a safe space and all the rest of it um, the looking forward we can go okay well actually we there is all this provision we can make um, I know for us at Rivers like when we're talking about how we're supporting um, teachers now and and school leadership teams we've said oh actually maybe we need to look at our model of provision um and say how how can we adjust it to try and make it um better so that we can be supporting um not just students and, and teacher relationships but parent in school relationships as well because now where parents are sort of like being given this responsibility of teaching their older children not just you know the babies you say okay well how can we foster this relationship to make it more um one that's more productive one where you you've got more interaction and where 
you can sort of like bridge all those gaps that exist at the moment. Things shouldn't go back to the way they were. We will hope that they don't. And, um, and also the other good thing that has come out of this as well is looking at um, uh, organizations like our like third sector, sector organizations and teachers who are online providing resources for um, other parents, for other teachers, ways to protect kids, ways to teach um, innovatively. And that's, that's been really uplifting, like going on Instagram and looking at the people who are not just with their horror stories of teaching their kids, but um, you know, in terms of the support that's available, that, you know, that it can provide and resources has been amazing. Great. Okay. Uh, that was everyone, wasn't it? Yes, it was. All right. So the last thing that we're going to do before we wrap up and let's keep it super short is can you all name one new thing that you have learnt or picked up uh, while you've been stuck at home in the evenings? I have done the TikTok video that I spoke about last time I was. And I actually think it was quite good. So. Yeah, it was all right. It was all right. I thought so. My, so, guys, yeah, you can find was, me at OEXJ, make me TikTok famous. It was good. But the reason why I'm, I'm, the reason why I'm sounding so, um, so unenthusiastic is because I promised in the last episode that my wife wouldn't, I wouldn't succumb to my wife's advances. Mm -hmm. Two hours of saying <laughs> you were on it. On, I was on TikTok with my wife doing a dance, so uh, I'll have to concede defeat on that one in this self in this self isolation. Well, not self isolation, social distancing. Get my terms right. Social distancing. Period. Yeah. So I've been on TikTok too. Notice. I've learned to do some nail art and nice. and indulge in my creative side, which I've never I haven't had the chance to do for a long time. And cook. Cooking, you? Yeah. I mean, like, I really enjoy <laughs> eating and I can cook, but like, I have to cook now. Guy, can you verify that, please? <laughs> Not wanted to set off any. Guy, you're on mute again. Yeah, there we go, occasionally. <laughs> Just so uh, people who, who aren't aware, Lotus and Guy are actually married, and that's why we're checking with Guy. Charlotte, what have you been up to? Um, well, I joined a virtual book club, but actually today I also managed to put some, uh, like, put a massive mirror up on the wall on my own and didn't electrocute myself, so. <laughs> well done. <laughs> you had to say? Yoga? Um, yeah, no, that's been going really well. Zoom yoga. I actually got complimented for my side plank through Zoom, but that's not what I'm going to talk about nice. today, guys. Um, <laughs> I've just <laughs> just come back from Trinidad Carnival. I'm missing the vibes. I'm missing Soka. So I'll be attending a Soka boat cruise this evening from my living room. I'll let you know how I get on. I don't know if I have to add the water. I'm going to have or... to talk to you off air about that because I don't understand how it's on a boat, but cool. We can talk about that later. Thanks to mind. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Echo? Um, they're going to do it in the bathtub. Um, <laughs> but, um, I'm trying to think. What have I done? Because I've been, I've, I've been looking after a, a sick person and and care and like just checking on my vulnerable parents and everything else. I, I haven't done. Okay, now so you're making me bad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know. That's that's what really what I want. Um, I've <laughs> learned how to, to to make people pity me um, over this time. But um, I think I've yeah I've cooked more than I have in a little while. And also realize how important, you know, um, the sense of smell is and sense of taste is to other people enjoying um, your food. Oh, yeah, so. I've lost that. So my husband's been really happy. He's been making really delicious meals that I cannot taste. Um, 
That's been great. Yeah. Yeah. It's really disappointing when someone goes, ah, oh, this looks lovely. I can't taste it. You go, oh, yeah. okay. It's half the pleasure done. So, yeah. Um, great. So thank you guys so much for joining us and taking the time out to be on the panel for our episode. And thank you very much to all of our listeners, uh, whether you are listening live or listening back. As I mentioned before, there'll be some extra content that I've roped the panelists into creating for us, which will go up onto our Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and so on. Just type in the manifesto read and you'll be able to find us on it. Did I miss out on Guy? Did I miss out guys? I think you did miss Guy. Oh yeah, sorry. Because we just went but to Guy to confirm that they just cook. Yeah. Sorry. Guy, what, guy, what have you? I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> doing some more exercise now, and day I feel like an obligation to do it. Um, I've been—I don't know about you. This is like a teacher question. Um, like, do you get that Sunday feeling? I don't actually get that Sunday feeling so much in the evening because I'm not in school at seven thirty a.m. So, like, I'm enjoying having a glass of wine on a Sunday afternoon. Ooh. Nice, nice, nice. So, exercise and wine. Yeah. Mm. Very nice. Okay, we are going to wrap up now. Yes, we have run out of time. We have got to everyone. We have run out of time. But yes, please do subscribe to us on your usual podcast channels. Check us out on YouTube. uh, You know, listen to us on Spotify and so on. And check out our Insta in particular for extra content. And we will be with you over the course of this week where we'll be recording some episodes about the economy, the justice system and constitutional affairs. The best way to keep updated is always to follow us on Instagram because that's probably the channel that we update most regularly and uh, most reliably. Um, so yeah, so thank you so much, guys, and we'll catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.